E.ON is an acronym for everything or nothing. It was started as a film production company by film producers Albert Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman in 1961. With their partnership, they sought financing in the first James Bond film, based on a book by the series by Ian Fleming. Dr. No would mark the debut of the franchise, but only after another Bond film concept met with challenges that caused them to change course. Welcome back to Hollywood Declassified. I'm John William Law. Thanks for tuning in again. We are talking about James Bond. Uh, we have talked a, a bit about the series, um, and kind of its influence and its impact uh, in the first couple episodes. We talked a little bit about Ian Fleming, Ian Fleming last time and kind of his his course to uh, to the world of film. Um, and now we're going to talk about the kind of lost Bond film, the whole purpose of this series and the, the idea behind it. Uh, I kind of alluded to it in the first episodes. Um, I uh, wrote about this film in a book called The Lost Hitchcocks because there was a, an attempt to get Alfred Hitchcock to be the first director of the Bond film. But instead of focusing on Hitchcock in this angle, we're going to actually talk a little more generally about the film um, and uh, James Bond um, and touch a little bit on Hitchcock. In February 1952, Ian Fleming woke up at his Jamaica Island retreat called Goldeneye and decided to go for a swim. He'd had a bit of a hangover from the night before and hoped the swim would do him good. After returning and cleaning himself up, he had the fortitude to begin the task at hand. Sitting at his desk, he typed up the first sentence of what would become his novel using the six of his fingers, the scent of smoke and sweat of a casino are nauseating at three in the morning. At roughly 2,000 words a day, Fleming completed his first novel on his royal portable typewriter in roughly two months. The final words were simply, the bitch is dead now. In many ways, the main character James Bond was an aspirational version of himself, tall and lean, a smoker and a drinker with an eye toward the ladies. Fleming described Bond like he would describe himself, with a longish nose and cruel mouth. Fleming crafted Bond with the knowledge he himself had collected over his years in wartime intelligence. But Bond was more than Fleming. He was a flawed, heroic figure who lived on martinis and caviar, vast international travel and sexual conquests with the most beautiful women in the world. He was, in many ways, the man Ian Fleming at one time may have hoped he would be. He described his 60,000-word manuscript as the pillow fantasies of an adolescent mind and tucked it away until he decided to let a few people read it. One former girlfriend told him, if you must publish it, for heaven's sake, do it under a different name. He didn't take her advice, and London publisher Jonathan Cape reluctantly printed the first edition of Casino Royale in 1953. With just 4,705 copies printed, Cape wasn't particularly optimistic about the release, but the small publisher was convinced to give it a chance after Ian's brother, travel writer Peter Fleming, put in a good word for his brother. Much to owner Herbert Jonathan Cape's surprise, Casino Royale sold well. Several more press runs followed and Cape contracted with Fleming for three more Bond novels. The initial books were met with decent reviews and strong interest. In 1954, Fleming sold the film rights to Casino Royale to CBS Television for a mere $1,000. It became the first episode of a TV series called Climax. After the second novel, Live and Let Die, was published in 1954, 
British film producer Alexander Korda reportedly considered acquiring rights for a film version, but the idea never progressed. However, Fleming would already be crafting a third novel, Moonraker, in 1955, with an eye toward getting James Bond onto the big screen. By the time of Fleming's ninth James Bond novel, and it was published in 1961, the success of the popular pulp fiction novels led producers Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Cubby Broccoli to negotiate the rights to bring the stories to the movies. Actually, Saltzman had already acquired the rights but needed funding to help and help from Broccoli to turn them into films. They created a studio called Eon Productions with the hope of bringing not only the new novel Thunderball to the big screen, but also the other films in the series. Casino Royale was the only story whose rights had already been sold. However, in looking into the acquiring the rights to the latest Fleming story, they found a complex legal case that needed untangling before the film could be made. Originally intended as the first film in the James Bond franchise, Thunderball started out as a screenplay and not as a book, and it had a different name. While the eventual film wouldn't hit screens until 1965, Saltzman and Broccoli opted to take Dr. No to the big screen as the first Bond movie in the long-running film series. What many were unaware of at the time was that a screenplay tentatively called Longitude 78 West started out as the first James Bond picture, and it was intended to star Richard Burton as 007, and the director was hoped to be Alfred Hitchcock. It was back in the fall of 1958 when Fleming's boyhood friend, Ivar Bryce, introduced him to a young writer and director named Kevin McClory. With Fleming thinking about his Bond novels as films, he thought McClory's skill would prove useful. The three men, along with Bryce's friend Ernest Cuneo, created a partnership called Xanadu Productions. And over a series of months, they crafted the concept for a film initially entitled Longitude 78 West. A host of outlines and scripts followed, along with a number of other potential film titles. Spectre, James Bond's Secret Agent, and Thunderball were suggested. In fact, McClory claimed that at one point the film idea became an idea for a TV series called James Bond and the Secret Service, and a number of Bond adventures were crafted for the TV series. Xanadu was never legally formed into a company, and after McClory's film The Boy and the Bridge was released in July 1959 and was badly received by critics and moviegoers, Fleming lost interest in McClory as a potential Bond film director. In fact, Fleming had thought it would be much more interesting if he could get Alfred Hitchcock to make the first film of the Bond novel. In September 1959, Fleming sent a telegram to novelist Eric Ambler, a mutual friend of Ian Fleming and Alfred Hitchcock, suggesting Hitchcock as the director of Longitude 78 West. Ambler was also a spy novelist as well as a screenwriter. He had received an Academy Award nomination in 1953 for his screenplay for the film The Cruel Sea. Ambler was also the husband of Joan Harrison, a key member of Hitchcock's inner creative team. Harrison was a screenwriter and producer who started as Hitchcock's secretary in 1933 and over the years became an important sounding board in the development and production of his films and TV series. Hitchcock struck up a friendship with Ambler after his wedding to Harrison in 1958. Outlining the plot for Ambler, Fleming, Fleming's telegram inquired, would Hitchcock be interested? The telegram explained the concept to Ambler, writing, have a written Bond movie treatment 
featuring mafia-stolen atomic bomber blackmail of England culminating NASA with extensive underwater dramatics. The telegram followed up by elaborating on the project. This is for my friend Eva Bryce's Xanadu Films LTD, which recently completed Boy and the Bridge, England's choice for Venice Festival, but blasted by critics and flop at Curzon, though now doing excellently on pre-release rank circuit. When Fleming inquired specifically, would Hitchcock be interested in directing the first Bond film in association with Xanadu? The telegram ended by adding plentiful finance available, this purely old boy inquiry without involvement, but think we might all have a winner, particularly if you were conceivably interested in scripting. Said in September 1959, Fleming never disclosed the actual name of the film, but the initial concept, Longitude 78 West, was the story he had in mind. Fleming would later change the name to Thunderball long after the telegram was sent. Some suggest Fleming had Hitchcock so much in mind as director that his concept was adjusted so that James Bond came off more Hitchcock-friendly. Fleming's film secret agent was adjusted from the ruthless, sadistic, and misogynistic man in the novels to a suave character who was keen on women and affairs. It was suspected that the screenwriters were influenced by Hitchcock's lead character in North by Northwest, Roger Thornhill, played by Cary Grant. By January 1960, during a visit from McClory at Fleming's Jamaica estate Goldeneye, Fleming told the director he planned to send the screenplay to MCA. Hitchcock had been under representation from MCA since 1945, with Lou Wasserman acting as his agent. Making a deal with MCA would have further helped align the Bond film with Hitchcock's direction. Fleming assured McClory that he'd suggest MCA provide both Bryce and McClory with producer credit, but if MCA was unwilling, McClory would be encouraged to either sell his portion to MCA or take them to court. No records indicate MCA ever considered financing the Bond picture, but Fleming reportedly hoped to get Longitude 78 West into production in 1960 with, with Richard Burton as James Bond and Alfred Hitchcock directing. Burton was suave enough and British enough to pull off the part as the elusive agent, while Hitchcock had the style to create the action-packed adventure. The screenplay, though, went nowhere that year. With McClory unable to secure financing to get his version into production, Fleming decided to return to what he knew best. Back at his GoldenEye estate in Jamaica, Fleming repurposed much of the screenplay into a novel he entitled Thunderball. This led Clevin McClory and Jack Whittingham to sue the author for breach of copyright. The novel Thunderball was completed between January and March of 1960 and released to the public on March 27, 1961. After the book's release, Saltzman and Broccoli acquired the screenwrites for the film versions of all Fleming's Bond books except Casino Royale. Saltzman and Broccoli didn't have any strong contacts in MCA, but Broccoli had been part owner of a small British studio called Warwick Films back in the 1950s. Through his work at Warwick, Broccoli had a connection with Arthur Krim, head of United Artists. This helped open the door for Eon to secure financing of $1 million to make the first Bond feature film with Longitude 78 West now changed to Thunderball. However, after McClory read an advanced copy of the book, he and Whittingham, a writer who worked on the screenplay, turned to London courts for an injunction to stop the publication of Thunderball. 
a case of plagiarism was heard in March 1961 and found the book could be published. Fearing legal action against the story of Thunderball, Eon did a quick reassessment of the situation, and Saltzman and Broccoli selected Dr. No, Fleming's sixth novel, as the best option for the first Bond picture. Even though Dr. No had suffered at the hands of book reviewers, it was a strong candidate because it didn't have the same level of technical challenge. Thunderball featured large-scale underwater action sequences and could easily exceed the $1 million budget. McClory continued to pursue Fleming in court and again sued him in November 1963. The case of McClory versus Fleming was heard over three weeks, during which time Fleming suffered a heart attack. About nine days later, Fleming was ready to settle. In failing health, Ian Fleming offered a deal to McClory. Settling out of court, Fleming gave McClory literary and film rights for the screenplay version of Thunderball, with Fleming retaining the rights to the novel. He also paid McClory damages of £35,000 and his court costs of £52,000. Nine months after the settlement, on August 12, 1964, Ian Fleming died following another heart attack. He was 56 and left behind a legacy of James Bond stories. Once Dr. No was selected for the film, Sean Connery recalled that he was not the producer's first choice. Originally, they were considering all sorts of stars to play James Bond. Trevor Howard was one, Rex Harrison was another. The character was to be a shining example of British upper-crust elegance, but they couldn't afford a major name. Luckily, I was available at the price they could afford. The press at the time had a bit of fun with the notion of an ex-coffin polisher playing a silky Ian Fleming character. But Terence Young was quite an elegant man himself, so he took me to his shirt maker, his tailor, his shoemaker, and helped me learn the proper Eaton manner. Everyone predicted disaster. Dr. No was released in October 1962. Directed by Terence Young, the film poured in, pulled in more than $6 million worldwide, making it a guaranteed hit off of the $1 million investment. Thunderball was eventually completed and released in 1965 after Ian Fleming's death and with McClory listed as a, in a producer's role. It would be a surefire box office smash, helping launch the phenomenon and secure the franchise at the box office. So much so, it remained for decades as the most successful Bond film when taking inflation into account. Its leading man, Sean Connery, would become a superstar as a Demeter secret agent. Had he been offered the opportunity through MCA, Hitchcock might seriously have considered the project. However, no response from Hitchcock has ever been noted, but reports suggest that Hitchcock was an avid reader of Ian Fleming's work back in the early 1950s and talked about the idea of bringing Bond to the big screen. Some reports suggest that Hitchcock actually toured with the idea of making a film version of the 1953 novel Casino Royale, but lost interest after he learned the story was being used for a teleplay on CBS in 1954. Interestingly enough, a few years after Casino Royale's TV debut, CBS proposed a James Bond television series based on Fleming's stories. It was the idea that McClory said was another possibility for the original Bond's concept he worked on with Fleming. Fleming reportedly drafted as many as seven outlines before CBS dropped the project. Hitchcock, in the meantime, would succeed with his own CBS series, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, debuting on the network in the fall of 1955, and it would survive for 10 seasons. As for films, 
After Dr. No, Bond would become a phenomenon and one of the most financially successful and longest-running franchises in movie history. Hitchcock had his own plethora of movie ideas landing on his desk, but never a Bond picture. After Dr. No, From Russia With Love received a $2 million budget and raked in $12.5 million at the box office. And it was followed by Goldfinger, which earned some $46 million worldwide on a budget of $3 million. By the time Thunderball reached theaters, the United Artists set the bond budget at $9 million and box office had climbed to nearly $30 million in the U.S. alone with more than $64 million worldwide. It would become the most successful bond picture. After adjusted for inflation, the film has earned in excess of $1 billion. Sean Connery would quickly become concerned about being typecast as James Bond and was eager for other opportunities to stretch as an actor. Hitchcock considered him for the role of Mitch Brenner in The Birds, but eventually selected Rod Taylor for the role instead because Connery was tied up with his latest Bond effort. After the release of The Birds in 1963, Hitchcock would turn his attention to the dramatic mystery called Marnie. When it came time to cast his leading man, who better than James Bond himself? Sean Connery would be directed by Alfred Hitchcock after all in 1964's Marnie. Connery told the press that the Bond films were becoming difficult to make. Filming could take six months of his time and prevent him from working on other projects. While Connery was able to do other films during his Bond years, he achieved little success from them. Often dismissed by the critics, he felt the Bond pictures were limiting his ability to fully dedicate himself to other projects and the film suffered for it. Producer Kevin McClory, having secured screen rights to Thunderball from Ian Fleming, first planned to make his version of the film as far back as 1964. He reportedly even had talks with Richard Burton to play Bond, but Burton wasn't interested. Harry Saltzman and Covey Broccoli wanted to avoid another Bond taking the big screen and made a deal with McClory for 1965's Thunderball film, where McClory got producer credit. Under their deal, Eon licensed McClory's rights for the 10 years and McClory even landed an uncredited cameo in the film. McClory tried unsuccessfully several times to retool the Thunderball concept into a new film called Warhead or Atomic Warfare, but the films never materialized. After the deal with Eon expired, Kevin McClory began looking to cash in on his Bond screenplay again. Around 1978, a script called James Bond and the Secret Service was being developed with the idea of Sean Connery returning to the Bond role once again but this time in a project not associated with E.ON. Legal woes delayed McClory's project until the early 1980s when Connery did sign on as Bond. Connery earned as much as $5 million for the project with a salary and a cut of the proceeds from Warner Brothers distributed film Never Say Never Again. Cubby Broccoli and E.ON fought a losing battle against McClory to prevent Never Say Never Again as they prepared their next Roger Moore Bond. Octopussy was the first to arrive in the summer in 1983 and fared well at the box office. Connery's return would hit theaters in the fall. While Never Say Never Again was a box office hit and did well during its release, it came up short in the summer haul of Octopussy. Connery blamed the production and felt the producers were not equipped to handle the scale of the project.